You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It's August 25th, 2022 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And uh, I wanted to talk about um, meaning making um, as an outcome of practice. I, 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 um, it ties into the attachment approach that we have here at Metagroup uh, in the sense that uh, we have these three main, uh, um, how would you call them, domains, using a Shinzen, a word of how that goes. We have the attachment system, the exploration system, and the collaboration system. We are human beings. We live in the human form, and human beings are designed to live in complex social groups. And um, particularly in the West, where uh, a lot of us have uh, great affluence, we can moderate that the the level of social connection that we have. Some of us actually. Uh, can moderate it to the point that we are mainly alone in uh, in um, how we operate in the world. I thought that I would touch on the that process of early practice um, where we begin uh, to develop uh, basic metacognitive skills, Vipassana um, meditation, um, which is mainly uh, the vehicle for, uh, we have for that. Um, I tend to teach a meta vipassana, so it's an integrated uh, heart practice and insight practice. Um, but these basic skills that form uh, in doing a basic vipassana practice. So in vipassana, the B means to divide, and pasana means to see clearly. So you're taking experience and beginning to pull it apart into its pieces, so that you can see the pieces separately and then watch them as they come together to form experience. So uh, with Shinzen's basic technique of see, hear, feel, we're dividing uh, the five uh, senses um, into visual experience, auditory experience, and the felt sense of the body. In Buddhist uh, practice, we have um, mind, which is a sixth sense, which is not uh, obviously incorporated into the see, hear, feel system. But what you notice about mind is that it's the thing that selects what you pay attention to. So when you come into your meditation stance and begin to pull apart uh, just the basics of experience, uh, you see that there's activations in your sense gates. Uh, The individual sense gates uh, can be active at the same time or not. uh, And that those activations then are are formed into uh, patterns of experience which we recognize and assign meaning to, or definitions to, and then that becomes the experience of conceptual reality. If you're not used to looking at that, uh, uh, you can rely on the perception of conceptual reality as a a reliable uh, marker of what's actually happening. And uh, in the West, of course, that's the Aristotelian view that you take in uh, the experience of what's out there, you create an internal working model, 
and then you operate from that internal working model. And that if you're sighted and you see the world, what you take in is an accurate reflection of what's actually out there. Uh, in Buddhist philosophy, we don't do that, uh, or the description of what we do is different than that. Our mind grabs little uh, pieces of the outside world, um, basically the pieces that we prefer, and that we take that highly curated selection of preferenced objects and create conceptual reality from that based on our conditioning. And then we project that outward uh, and uh, see the outside world uh, as out there, even though it's a it's a reflection of our internal experience projected. Is that making sense? That description. So as we begin to pull it apart, what we see is we have uh, the capacity to sense objects can be sensed when there's contact. A consciousness of that sensing experience arises. It's evaluated for urgency. Does it need immediate attention? Does it not matter whether we get to it? Uh, it's pleasant. Is there time to have a pleasant experience? Uh, there's a cue. The urgent stuff gets processed first, the pleasant stuff second. The stuff that doesn't matter may never be processed. Then it's compared to the perceptual database. And if there's a match in the database that's close enough to what we're experiencing in the present moment, the meaning, the historical condition meaning attaches to the present moment, and it flips into conceptual reality. One of the things about this is that uh, we can easily lose track of the experience of the present moment in that and slip into the thinking process, the defining process, and then all of the limitations of the previously experienced happenings are assigned to the present moment and we lose track of the possibilities of the present moment and inhabit only uh, the conditioned uh, experience. We call that samsara or these ruts, these ways of habitually responding to the understanding of the experience that we create. Uh, if you would like, uh, which I quite do, uh, the um, um, quantum uh, idea of this in that each moment what opens is all of the possibilities that you could choose in that moment, all of them laid out and as soon as you pick one, all of the ones except for the one you pick fall away. And then what comes in the next moment is all of the possibilities that are tied to the possibility that you chose in the moment before. We call that the knowledge of conditionality if you if you follow the Mahasi map or the second stage to understand that the previous moment has set up the moment that we're in and this moment sets up the next moment based on the choice that we make so that you can find yourself arcing into uh, uh, a um, afflictive uh, uh, cycle or into a beneficial cycle depending on the choices you make. So in this basic metacognitive description, uh, uh, there are six of these. Awareness of the state of mind of self and other. So uh, we talk about that as understanding that you have uh, a mind state and other people have a mind state and that they're different. Your mind state and the way that you conceive of uh, conceptual reality is based on your conditioning and other people's uh, 
mind states and the way that they create conceptual reality is based on their conditioning so that even though the two of you are together experiencing the same phenomena the way that you understand it and the way that they understand it are necessarily different because conditioning is different the definitions of what you understand uh, the activity of the present moment to be are different so that you recognize that uh, your conditioning creates a different experience than other people's conditioning and you understand that that's the, the nature of the human experience, that there's not a problem with that, right? That you interpret something very different than someone else is not a problem. What, what it is is a curiosity. And actually, if you can get somebody to be open about what their experience is and you feel safe to express openly what your experience is, it creates contrast and depth in the understanding of what's actually happening. And it's expansive in that way. The second one is that you're able to uh, um, monitor the accuracy of your interpretation of what's going on. Have you ever had the experience of getting it completely wrong? <laughs> the Buddha uses that story of the, the farmer who goes into the hut. He sees a snake in the corner, which he hacks apart, and then he lights the candle and it's a, it's a coil of rope that he's cut up, right? Um, so Tajapanati is the Pali word for this activity of comparing ultimate reality with conceptual reality. And it's a constant checking to make sure that the way that you're creating your experience of the present moment is actually reflective of what's happening in the present moment and not uh, something that's been distorted by the way that you uh, create that experience um, i like it i liken it to a rocking back and forth touching inside to the experience of sensing and then looking outside to see how you've changed that uh, experience into a representation of the world one of the things that you can do in meditation practice of course is track the quality of what the sensing experience is and compare that to uh, conceptual reality. Uh, so in visual experience, if you look at external seeing as a sensing experience, what you notice is that there's a sort of a circle space in the center of seeing where the, there's focus, where the imagery is sharp and where there, there's sufficient detail to make out what's happening. And if you look at the sides of seeing up above and below and to each side, what you see is there's less focus, there's less detail, uh, it's less descriptive until it falls off altogether. But that if you're looking at a, at a, as you scan the room, a room that's all detailed, all sharp, all in focus, then what you're looking at is not the sensing experience, but the mental representation of that sensing experience. So the eye has moved around the room in a browning motion, just grabbing pieces of information that are of interest and then assembling an, a solid, in-focus, detailed representation of that. And can you tell the difference between when you're in the representation of things which is created by the mind and what the mind is sensing in order to pull that together. 
awareness of one's own influence on another state or behavior and vice versa. So mindfulness of inside is mindfulness of your own. Mindfulness of outside is the mindfulness, mindful awareness of other people. And then mindfulness of inside and outside, this is from the Satipatthana Sutta, describes the experience of you uh, presenting and somebody else experiencing that, that having an effect on them, and then them expressing that effect, and then you taking that in, and that having an effect on you, and then you expressing it, and that having an effect on them. That your uh, presentation, your reaction, your expression has an effect on, uh, on other mind states, on other people, and then their responsiveness to your, or your, to their uh, input has an effect on your uh, experience. In order to mentalize this well enough, you have to track a lot of, uh, of experience and you have to track it fast enough to know what's happening. Uh, you express something and somebody responds to it in a way that's completely different than what you think you meant. And actually you interpret their expression as uh, hurtful. In that moment, can you pull apart how that might have happened in time to adjust the responsiveness that you're going to get? Or do you simply react with a sense that they've intended to hurt you? Do you need to defend yourself or to strike back? So you express something which you think is communicative of what you mean, but because their definitions are different than yours, they understand it as they're defining it, not as you're intending it. And then they react to that. And then they say something to you, which comes from them feeling unseen and hurt, which is hurtful, which you then take in. But if you can track fast enough that they misunderstood your communication and then attempt to investigate uh, what they understood and to try and re-communicate what it was that you wanted them to know, uh, that could settle that reactivity before you escalate it with another uh, uh, action. Uh, the fourth one is becoming aware of one state of mind in such a way that it has a regulatory effect. Uh, we call this self-generated emotion in the way that we construct it. Um, Dan Siegel uses the term, the window of tolerance uh, for emotional intensity. So something happens in the present moment, you react to it. There's an emotional component to the reaction which exceeds the window of tolerance. And so you have an emotional event that needs to be regulated. Uh, and then how do you regulate it? So we all learn to emotionally regulate in the process uh, of being with our caregiver. So we're an infant, we're in the arms of our caregiver, we express ourselves in, a, in an unknowing, authentic way. Our caregiver attends to us, connects to us empathetically, understands what our communication is, mirrors back to us the understanding of that communication and then uh, decides on what uh, uh, how to respond to that and if they respond to that in a way that actually is helpful to us 
we have a sense of uh, self-confidence that develops from that. I can express myself in a way to get my needs met and the world will meet my needs is the experience. So I, I have a sense of confidence in that. Um, as uh, that process develops in early childhood, those responses that our caregiver gives to us, which are regulating for us, which are helpful for us, we can learn to do for ourselves. And so we begin to take on an understanding of what actually is regulating and what uh, experiences we have that can be regulated by the different skill set that we learn. And so we begin to collect these emotional regulation strategies from our caregiver. That all making sense. When we develop enough of them, we have a kind of mastery at, at being able to regulate ourselves, which really supports exploration. When we're dependent on a caregiver to emotionally regulate us, we all come into the world without a knowledge of emotions and without the capacity to regulate ourselves. When we in, interject these strategies that they use to help us regulate, then we can support our own exploration independent of a regulator. And when we develop a collaborative system of emotional regulation with a caregiver, which tends to be associated with secure functioning people, then we can really go out to the edge where meaningfulness might be found and look for it in a way that if we can't regulate, we can't go to. So that this process of, of um, becoming aware that or the mind can be used as a way of emotionally regulating is essential to exploration, which is then essential to meaning making. That is to say, our exploration is of things that we find valuable, which we find meaningful, which are helpful to us as we explore. Uh, the fifth one is awareness of one's own or another's action plans or goal directedness. And here, really, what we're discovering is that our exploration, the things that we need to do to pursue meaning, are going to be different than what other people need to do. And that our uh, pursuit of what's meaningful to us through our exploration is of value, and other people's um, pursuit of meaningfulness through their exploration is valuable. And that this is something that should be supported, uh, and that's something that we should uh, really expect the people that are close to us to, to provide for us, that they support our exploration and we in turn support their exploration. Which brings us to the sixth one, which is the meaning making. How do you spend your time and do you spend enough of your time engaged in an activity that you find in the activity itself meaning? It's a big uh, question. Uh, in Buddhism, of course, when you, when you come into the path, what we ask of you is that you take an ethical stance in the world. Um, and we define that with the precepts. The layperson precepts is to undertake the practice to refrain from killing, to undertake the practice to refrain from uh, speech, uh, harmful speech, uh, to un undertake the practice to refrain from sexual 
conduct that causes harm to undertake the practice, um, uh, to uh, not take what is freely offered. I think I switched the second and fourth. And then the fifth one is uh, to undertake the practice to refrain from imbibing intoxicants, intoxicants that lead to harm, har, uh, heedlessness, I think it is. I was uh, reading the paper this morning, and uh, what came across was um, the uh, sustainable uh, development goals that the United Nations has put out. I don't know if you're aware of them. It's a uh, response to uh, global warming and response to a kind of runaway late stage capitalism, which is kind of consuming the habitability of the planet uh, without concern for the effect that it will have on us. And what I thought was interesting about it is um, the way that different uh, cultures have embraced it. For instance, part of the article said that uh, the Japanese corporate establishment has uh, is supporting the, the hunting of whales as part of the environmental goals because whales eat a lot of fish uh, and uh, so you know it really does emphasize that you can create any reality <laughs> out of the sensing experience depending on the conditioning because i would never uh, uh, do that myself i would never come up with that it seemed like a stretch um, the uh i don't know if you know what these are i thought that they were uh interesting and um we often um or at least i often have a conversation with people about what's actually meaningful and how do you how do you know what how do i know what to do to find out what's meaningful if you if you don't have a sense of that and so uh here we have these uh, these uh, uh, goals for creating a world. Um, the first one is no poverty. The second one is zero hunger. The third one is good health and well-being. The fourth one is quality education. The fifth one is gender equality. The sixth one is clean water and sanitation. The second one is, the oh, seventh one is affordable and clean energy. The eighth is decent work and economic growth. The ninth is industry, innovation, and infrastructure. The tenth one is reduced inequalities. The 11th one is sustainable cities and communities. The 12th one is responsible consumption and production. The 13th one is climate action. The 14th one is life below the water. So that's about uh, saving the oceans. The 15th one is life on land. Um, 16 is peace, justice, and strong institutions. 
And 17 is partnerships for these goals. So an organization of uh, people working together for this. It seemed uh, like, a, like a really good list to me. And then the idea that we have to hunt the whales to, <laughs> to protect life below the water uh, is that uh, mentalizing experience of uh, people creating a, a sense of reality that matches their own conditioning. One of the things about living in the West, of course, is that we are so affluent in comparison to other parts of the world that it's that if you don't go to other parts of the world and see how it is, it's very hard to fathom what that's like. Uh, I, I, I wanted to go to this uh, site, uh, a cave in sort of northern Myanmar, which is uh, is a long drive, seven hours into the hills, the mountains. And it was a place where uh, the, the average uh, wage uh, was $2 a day. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where people make $2 a day. It's very basic. Um, you meet the people, of course, and, and there's a sense of aliveness and a sense of happiness. Uh, uh, and there's a sense of hard work that's necessary. Um, some of you may um, uh, burn incense, you know, those stick incense that are a few dollars a box. Um, in the villages up there in Miranamar, uh, you got $2 for 15,000 sticks of incense which took about 12 hours to make. Um, so the, in the, 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 uh, the little slivers of bamboo are then coated with a, a, a kind of tamarind bark mulch and glue and rolled. And, you know, to roll that many in a day, you have to move really fast. And so with an amazing level of skill to produce that. So that's eight, decent work and economic growth, reduced inequalities of the, uh, the, the colonial nations and the, the nations which were colonized. So we have the big picture of this big picture of all of us in this together and trying to create a world where uh, each person's experience is valued and each person's uh, need for exploration and meaning making is supported in some way. But that still uh, beggars the question of what do we do in our own lives that then produce this sense of meaningfulness? And that actually is a question that's uh, part of the process of exploring. 
I have my Apple story, which I tell. Um, uh, 44 years ago, uh, I got sober in AA. Uh, and um, I had a sponsor and I asked him what I was going to do now because uh, so much of what I had done before, I couldn't really do anymore and, and have any expectation of staying sober. Uh, and he says, I don't know, you'll figure it out. What kind of apples do you like? And I said, I don't really like apples. They're hard, they're sour. He said, well, Granny Smith's are hard and sour, but there's a lot of different apples. Go to the Korean deli, buy a Granny Smith and buy one other apple, eat them both. And then the next day, go and buy the apple you like better and another apple until you've gone through all of the apples at the Korean deli, which at the time in New York, there was maybe 20, I think there were 26 varieties of apples. And I went through that process. It took about a month. And at the end of the month, I liked gala apples. Uh, and pink ladies were a close second. Uh, and that was very instructive about exploration is that you go and you, you have the experience of exploring, and then you evaluate the experience of exploring, and it redirects you in a, in a new direction, in a new something to explore. And most of the, the directions that you go in are dead ends. You try 25 apples to find the one apple that you uh, like the best. Um, one of the things about uh, attachment conditioning and the way that exploration is supported, depending on what uh, your uh, attachment experience was, uh, you may not be resilient in your exploration. And so you make a couple of inquiries and then they don't produce enough meaningfulness. And so it shuts down the whole process of exploring rather than simply moving, taking what you did find out and having it redirect you into the next one. I think there's a resilience in securely functioning people or, or earn secure uh, functioning people where there's an understanding about the nature of that that produces a resilience that if you don't find it in one direction, it eliminates that direction. And then you go in a different direction as you pursue it. Um, so in the activity, you find uh, a meaningful to do it, uh, to engage in it, to discover something about uh, the, the nature of self and the nature of world. Uh, now, of course, when you turn to meditation, really the goal that you're being directed toward in the end is enlightenment. Um, and I think that many of us come into practice with this understanding of what enlightenment is. I, I, I think Shinzen said it uh, the best I've heard, which is... Um, mo uh, um, most people come into the pursuit of enlightenment with an idea of what it is. And most people's um, idea of enlightenment is not what enlightenment is at all. Um, um, but then enlightenment turns out to be much better than what it is that you imagined it would be kind of a paradox. It's not at all what you thought it was going to be. 
and it's much better than that. <clears throat> I remember uh, early on in the first Vipassana class I took, the teacher had a, went around the room and asked everybody um, what they were there for. And I, uh, I guess, completely naively said, well, I wanted to be enlightened, which created a rolling belly laugh in all of the rest of the <laughs> participants in the class as if this were an impossible goal, uh, but that I could understand why we all would be practicing for uh, two and a half millennia and it not be a worthwhile or practical goal. So it just took looking around for somebody who thought it might work. Um, <clears throat> It's not nearly as good as what you thought it was going to be, and it's much, much better than what you thought it was going to be. So we begin this process of exploring for that, a series of insights that we go through in order to open up to this idea of what it is actually that we're doing here. And my sense of this is that at the end of that is this sacred sense of sacredness about uh, this human life which I had a really hard time understanding at the beginning. Uh, I sat with Katriana Reed and uh, she uh, said that uh, gaining enlightenment was like being a sea turtle swimming in the ocean and, and then just accidentally coming up to the surface inside of a, a, a life ring. The chances that, that it would happen were phenomenal which I always experience as disheartening rather than encouraging. Um, and then Shinzen said that he expected everyone there to have stream entry in this lifetime. And that, that actually was more, in, more encouraging. Um, I like maps and I use Mahasi's uh, Progress of Insight in the Manual of Insight because uh, it organizes your practice and orients you to look at particular uh, insights. And then once you have the, in, the insight that it's pointing to you, it leads you into the next insight. And so you see this progression uh, of insight leading to insight, leading to insight, which ultimately brings you to the place of understanding. But it's not so different than the description uh, I gave at the beginning. You take in the sensing data, you create uh, an internal working model of the world and you project it out. And you understand that that's your projection of the world based on your conditioning, that you're constantly in the habit of checking whether or not that representation is uh, accurate or not. So as you practice, and there you are, abiding in this profound sense of sacredness, which is timeless. And then you drop back down into the limit, limited identity, the sense of self, which can't comprehend any of that. When you're in that moment of sacredness, it all seems perfectly obvious. 
and then you drop into the sense of self and it seems entirely bewildering and it's this this ease of back and forth so maybe that's another definition of what enlightenment is this this movement between that and the other stas george do you feel like the um the kind of the more developed part of the brain is still functioning where you know because i feel like the sense of self is can be diminished but it's still kind of there at least the way i practice um uh do, do you have you ever been around uh, kids um, and the toys that they have. Uh, there's one particular kid's toy, um, which is a, it's a little cart, and uh, it has wheels in it, and you pull it along, and there's something in there that pops, and these little balls, colored balls pop up. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's kind of the experience I have of it. I'm this awareness, this container, and then the little activity of self pops up, uh, uh, as, a, as a brightly colored ball for a moment and then vanishes. But it also depends on the practice you're doing, because if you're in the bond practices, that you're just moving into a sense of awareness, and so all of the phenomena is happening. And if you're doing the more Theravada practices, you're moving into a sense of no self. So there isn't really a way to track that when you're in no self. That making sense? Yeah, I I mean uh, the other thing I was thinking of, you know, there's people go through extreme experiences like the, you know, the temescals is one where you do the, you know, so hot and extreme, you kind of push into a no self experience or yeah, the ego collapses in the right. in the face of adversity. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there I. Feel your brain is just working differently. You're just so right. strange. But I feel like the, you know, a lot of the retreats or spontaneous experiences, I feel like the kind of the ordinary part of the mind still working. Right. But you're just not in it. Mm -hmm. I remember um, and the first few years of going into the sweat lodges, the ego would give up almost immediately, and I'd be in these wonderful states for you know hours. And then, as my practice deepened and I got more and more equanimous with discomfort, I would just go in the sweat lodge, and my ego would tenaciously hold on for the whole <laughs> experience, and it actually became quite unpleasant. Uh, so I would wait round after round for the ego to collapse, and it just held on. Um, so you, you, I also noticed that you have uh, uh, experiences that are that uh, correspond to where you where you are in the development of your practice. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, that being said, why don't we do some practice uh, so that we can uh, begin to have these experiences? Joan? I was wondering, 
you were talking about um, rocking back and forth between perception of in, uh, the internal experience and external. Could you give an example of how you track that? Um, well, in a simple way, it would be say, see here, feel, focus in, focus out. Right. Out is other, out is outside, and focus in is really the, the experience of self. Right. Um, uh, if you talk about it in terms of metacognition or mentalizing, and one of the aspects is internal versus external. The internal representation is the focus in, and the external representation is focus out. Um, so in a, in a daily situation, out on the street, so to speak, uh, is that the same process? I just notice what I, my experience, and then I look out and see everybody else's experience as best I can? Yes, uh, internal experience is self, external experience is other, but you also have to be, uh, you have to validate your experience of that with them in some way to actually really know. Otherwise, you're really in your own uh, experience of them. This is what I think is going on. What do you think is going on? Right. Okay. Uh, so it's an it really is an engagement. Okay, that makes sense. Right. Uh, okay. Then you get that. You get the feedback from them. You know, we, we can be pretty good uh, and get in the ballpark of what's actually going on for somebody, but if we don't directly ask them and they're not open to telling us, it's very hard to know what's happening with them. One of the things um, that secure people do uh, with the empathetic experience is that they have the first level, which is that responsiveness to the experience of uh, other people's pain, physical or emotional. And then they're, they're pretty good at reading facial expressions and body language. But urban people are good at stilling uh, the presentation of that. So it's not, they can, they can completely mask what that experience is. And then the third is this empathetic experience. In Buddhism, we call it compassionate empathy, where you feel in your body a facsimile of what they're feeling. If you can track that and compare it to the external presentation, we have a sense of whether somebody's lying or not. Um, but uh, secure people also have a fourth dimension of that, which is they compare what people say they're going to do to what they actually do. And that also has to match. And insecure people don't tend to do that comparison. They split it off in childhood because uh, in order to preserve the, the good parent, because they have parents that often don't do what they say they're going to do. Um, so that, that piece is also there. So if you do all four of those things, you have a sense of what uh, the other person's experience is. You can compare that to what you what you mapped and then uh, adjust and in that adjustment begin to learn uh, the definitions of the other person. We do in in relationships uh, in intimate relationships in particular like to learn the definitions uh, that the other person is using to define their experience so that we have a way of relating to them. 
way of communicating so that they understand what we mean. Is that making sense? So let's do some uh, basic see, hear, feel uh, practice, and then we'll do some focus in, focus out. So splitting apart the experience of what's happening, watching it come together. Any questions about that before we begin? I'll give the instructions as we go along. So go ahead and take your meditation posture. So any comments or questions about what we did? Pretty straightforward, I think, for most people. So thanks for your practice um, coming up. Uh, we have a level two starting in uh, September, I think on the 6th, so about 10 days out. We have uh, a week-long retreat uh, at Seven Circles, uh, October 1st to the 8th. Um, and then, um, not sure what's happening uh, with the uh, trip to Asia, but I am going to be doing a retreat in Europe in June of next year, if you happen to be traveling around. Um, so, Thank you for coming. Thank you for your practice. I offer the teaching on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. Uh, if you want to make a donation to me or to Metagroup, it's really appreciated. Any amount is fine. There's a link on the website to do that. Well, thank you for coming, and we'll see you somewhere on the path, I hope. Bye now. Thanks, George. Yeah, bye now. <laughs>